And so there is a sense of community and kinship and scale to it that I think binds people very closely together. And I, and I felt that literally walking onto stage. Schleck kind of came up alongside Torres and glanced at his bike computer, you know, at the readout on his little screen. And David just, I remember he just buttoned off our microphones and roared with laughter. Um, and I went, what, 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 why are you laughing? And he went, well, Schleck's just about to buy the race. <laughs> now, I, disclaimer, from a legal perspective, I have no <laughs> idea whether any money changed hands. The fundamental rule of road racing, or indeed track racing, actually, but let's stick with the road, is that the guy on the front, the rider on the front, is the only rider you can guarantee who's not going to win. <laughs> right? Everyone else has got a chance. The guy on the front hasn't got a chance. The upshot of all of that was that Chris Froome then stormed onto, I think it was the Astana at the time, the Astana team bus, and um, berated Vincenzo Nibali. In fact, he pinned him up against the wall. Can you imagine? <laughs> Can you imagine Chris Froome pinning anyone up against the wall? Welcome to the Roadman Cycling Podcast. My name is Anthony Walsh. Six days a week, we bring you an inspiring person or message to help you on your journey towards health, happiness, and longevity. Now let's get into the show. It's episode 627 of the Roadman Cycling Podcast. Today I sit down and chat with Mr. Ned Bolting. Time for a little bit of business. Today's show is sponsored by Stages Cycling. Upgrading from a turbo trainer was an absolute game changer for me. No more constantly swapping bikes onto the trainer. Your indoor training setup is just there. It's ready for your session when you are. I remember years ago seeing a clip on YouTube of Floyd Landis and he had a proper indoor training setup. I remember thinking to myself, if I had that, it looks friction free. I'd ride like seven hours a day. Now, I've been using the Stages SB20 smart bike, and I have to say, it's really realistic and it's an immersive cycling experience. You can customize absolutely everything. You can even select the drivetrain to match your outdoor bike. I'm rocking Shimano. It's really comfortable. I've customized the fit to my exact spec out on the road. It has a Stages dual-sided power meter, configurable shifting, sprint buttons. The frame is so stiff and durable. It's rock solid when I'm sprinting. I've paired this up with Zwift, but it's compatible with loads of other apps like Trainer Road and Ruby. And a feature I'm loving at the moment is, it's pretty simple, but it has the USB ports in the back so you can charge your phone and iPad as you go. If you want to get your hands on one of these, which I thoroughly recommend, head on over to stagescycling.com and use the checkout code ROADMANSB20 at checkout for an additional 5% off. That's called Roadman SB20 at checkout for an additional 5% off. I'm going to throw all those details below in today's show notes. Roadman, welcome back to another Roadman Cycling Podcast. Christmas is approaching. Ding dong, merrily on high. My time in Girona is coming to an end and I'm heading back to Dublin, at least for the Christmas period anyway. I might come out and grace the beautiful Catalonian roads a little bit in the new year. Today, I get a chance to sit down and chat with one of the most iconic voices in the world of cycling, Mr. Ned Bolting. As soon as you hear the voice, you're instantly going to recognize it. He has narrated some of the most iconic moments in cycling. 
What you may not know about Ned, or you may, depending on how big a fan you are, he's also a pretty prolific author. And he has penned titles like How I Won the Yellow Jumper, Dispatches from the Tour de France, 101 Damnations. It's a Dispatches from the Tour de France one. And his latest book, The Road Book, which he comes on to talk about, which is an amazing stocking stuffer. I think you're going to love this valuable insight into the world of cycling from a unique and talented narrator. Please welcome to the Roadman Cycling Podcast, Mr. Ned Bolting. Ned Bolting, welcome to the Roadman Cycling Podcast. Thanks, Anthony. Thank you very much. Good to see you again. Yeah, so we were chatting off air, and Ned's been on Cyclist Magazine Podcast, and I, I nearly have. introduced you there saying, welcome to the Cyclist Magazine Podcast. Ooh. But oh. uh, it's all right on this show because I've no boss, but on that show, it's not as cool. <laughs> uh, Ned, I have this kind of weird sanity check I do. Myself. I'm a fanatic uh, writer. I bring a diary with me everywhere. I'm always scribbling down notes. But I have this sanity check I do every now and then, and... I like to think uh, about how my 10-year-old self perceives me because I have this idea that you need to be the hero in your own story. And at many times in my journey, I've just ripped it up and started over again. Like the most pronounced of those, I was running four or five different businesses at one point, a cafe, a social media marketing agency, event pre-registration website, I was building an app. And literally inside a few days, I was like, uh-oh, I don't feel like the hero in my story. I'm burning it all down again. Like I'm starting from scratch. I'm wondering how you think your 10-year-old self would perceive you. Would he be proud of you? Whoa, that's deep, isn't it? That's caught, that's caught me. Oh, it's 10 o'clock in the morning here. Oh, we're not cycling magazine here. Like we go deep. Got my third cup of tea on the go and you've absolutely slapped me around the face with that particular fish. Do you know, I, I, I think so. Yeah, I think so. I think so. But whether or not, I think with the outcome, I think they'd be quite impressed and surprised with the outcome and the range of different things I I do. I think they'd be perplexed and slightly embarrassed by the journey and the length of time it's taken me to get there. Like, <laughs> because it hasn't been at all straightforward my career. It's been um it's been it's gone around in loops and it's um full starts and a bit like you're saying, stuff that never worked and you just had to abandon and get out of and um and then eventually the guiding I don't know the guiding principle which is which has led me to the point where I am is for do the things that you enjoy doing which sounds very simplistic and almost kind of trite but that's like that's where I what that's what I've done that's what I've done I'm very fortunate to be in that position so I think if that's the if that's the um parameter by which like when I was 10 going back to a 10 year old self all you do as a 10 year old is do the things that you want to do, right? Because everything else that you don't want to do is just like imposed on you by school or your par- your parents or whatever, and you just fight against it and you resent it. You have very little sense of duty. You live for doing the things that you want to do. And actually, fast forwarding to the point I am in my life now, I think that's pretty much where I'm at. So I f- feel like I'm probably, I've got the kind of maturity of a 10-year-old sitting here. So I think my 10-year-old self would would applaud what they see. Well, that's kind of what I'm trying to move towards. I was sitting down in the cafe yesterday and I was writing and I was kind of reflecting on what does a perfect day look like? I'm not sure it exists. Mm. I think it's this kind of elixir, a mirage in the distance that we never quite get to. But in as far as we can construct our engineer, what does a perfect day look like? And for me, it's some variation of having a podcast because I just love these long form conversations where we get to go a little bit past the trivial. Mm. I love riding my bike. I love hanging out with friends. 
love connecting with family, having some sort of meditative practice in my own time, reading, self-development. Beyond that, I'm definitely not a complicated creature, I figured out. So every day, how close are you getting to your dream day? Or do you think about it like that? So I, I literally, before I sort of logged on to click on your link here, I sat at this big desk. I'll show you the desk. Like it's one of these like big old sort of... Oh, uh, yeah, that's quite a, quite a desk where you could pen a novel or you could write the constitution. Well, well, <laughs> I, um, I, I'm, I'm publishing a book next summer, which is the first book I've written about cycling for a while. The last two books I wrote were about respectively darts and football. And um, because my core audience is kind of a cycling audience, um, turns out not that many people were interested in reading them, <laughs> uh, which is a real shame because I'm secretly, ext- well, not secretly, quite, but quite openly very proud of both books. But to cut a long story short, my next book coming out is a return to, to writing about cycling. I, I can't really say what it is, but, uh, but, it's, um, but it was a project that I, has taken two years of writing and I did it at this desk, Anthony. And I started researching it and writing it during the darkest months of our second lockdown. And I, I have I have this notebook that I just filled with scribbles about. Yeah, I this was that. this was the basis of my book. Yeah, and um, and that was my lockdown. That's what I did. That's what I did for day after day after day after day, sitting at this desk in the in the kind of winter autumn and winter of 2020 when the world was shutting down again. And I've got a kind of weird nostalgia for those days actually but then that lasted six months and then and then I just needed I was busting to get back out in the world again so I'm, I'm very fortunate I, my, my working life divides quite uh, sort of like clearly into three chunks really one is my work on television uh, that's a third of, of my sort of time and energy I think uh, an equal third of it is writing I write for magazines and I also write books and I edit the road book as well which we're coming to talk to I'm, I'm sure and the other third is I do this um, in the autumn. I've just finished doing. I do this stage show about. The, uh, I absolutely love that idea. I want to get into that as well in a second. But that's a really different prospect, and they're all kind of they're three Venn diagrams that hover very close to each other and don't really overlap particularly, but occasionally do. But it, that is my working life. It divides into three quite equal chunks. So, so, so I haven't got the perfect day, except right now. I'm very, I'm feeling very nostalgic for just, you know, just because it's winter and just kind of like bedding down like a hibernating animal and just burying myself in research sounds quite appealing right now, I must admit. I think the pendulum swings as well, though. And I think the pendulum swings to those times, like seasonality in nature is important for flowers to blossom and flourish and animals to function in our whole ecosystem. But I also think it's important for us as well. There's a, there's a creative period that's winter where we need to go inwards into ourselves and then there's a period where we can blossom and we can be you know social and showing our flowers off but i think we need seasons to our life i don't think we can be the same person all year round no that would that would that would drive you insane wouldn't it i mean uh, so so i think we're quite lucky uh, both of us this is just going to sound like a smug slap each other on the back (laughs) but but i think increasingly you know the way the world is and i think I think um, not by design necessarily, but because there are fewer and fewer jobs for life and people's expectations aren't that you just get into a career and stay in that career. Um, and the gig economy, for want of a better word, even though that's a ferociously destructive capitalist tool to wreck people's lives, basically. On the other hand, um, more and more people construct a, a working life or construct a, a kind of landscape of a career which can often go in different threads and and it's a a sort of spinning plates quite often but also there's a sense of I think people are to some extent in control of of kind of like moving through the gears and doing doing different things and exploring different avenues and I 
I think that's probably quite a good thing. Certainly in my case, I feel that's been a good thing. Like I've changed career a lot. If I look back and reflect on my last 10 years, I just mentioned some of them there. I've had five, six different from, you know, law school and going into law to being a cyclist to entrepreneur and now Mm. coaching and then now finally back to the podcast. Mm. You've been in the cycling industry for north of 20 years at this point. Yeah, right about that. I'm wondering, although it's the same career, how have you changed over that period of time? Oh, blimey. Well, I've got a lot older, 20 years of older, um, which is not inconsiderable. Um, I I have gained a very, very slowly, very slowly, and this has a lot about the the nature of road racing, I think. I have gained a confidence in um, my own judgment, uh, which has made me, I think, relax a little bit. I think at the beginning, it was um, such a daunting prospect, this kind of like very, very uh, smooth cliff face edifice of, of road racing. It's very hard to get any kind of access to it at all. And I, and I found myself being very keen to get to understand the sport, but also very put off by how difficult and inaccessible it was at, at some levels. And it's taken me a long time, I think, to feel anything other than a, a, an outsider and a newbie. But I think just recently, and perhaps coincidentally with working on the roadbook for five years, which is, has a real authority to it, I think now for the first time I I feel secure in my own judgment. I get things wrong, for sure, but I feel that my voice is valid for the first time, and it's taken me a long time to feel that, I think, out of respect for the experience of others and out of respect for a sport that really took some learning. And I think you get to a point where, listening to your commentary, where I don't even know if it's right to classify it in the binary right versus wrong because you have an opinion which maybe it's not an opinion I agree with, but it's definitely not a wrong opinion. It's a different way to view the race. And I think that's mm. a that's a journey to get to that. I we spoke on Cyclist Magazine podcast. I come from a house where my my earliest memories are around a bike and my dad working on bikes. So mm. I've been my whole life watching bike races. I've been bike racing for the last 15 years or so. Mm. Mm. And if I watch a bike race with my dad, I'm still made to feel like an outsider. I'm still made to feel like, <laughs> yeah. you know, oh, you don't understand what uh, Copy and Bartley were doing back coming out of the war and the, you know, amazing book, Road to Valor, Copy smuggling these documents. And every day is a school day I'm over watching a bike race with my dad. Yeah. But I mean, even even then, so if you take, if you take, I'm kind of imagining a race scenario that we might want to talk about. We talk about a breakaway of, let's say, four riders that suddenly with 30 kilometers to go realizes it's got a real chance of getting to the line. And so those are the, some of the best racing days, aren't they, in a stage race where you can sort of kick back and go, okay, the next 30 kilometers are going to be, <laughs> they're going to be genuinely tactically fascinating, aren't they? Because the four riders in the breakaway, there might be one neo pro and, and two older heads and one rider who's just got a poker face on. And as a commentator, you start to have to read the tea leaves and, and kind of sift the visual information that you're getting in the finest detail to try and interpret the body language of what tactically might be going on amongst these four riders and how it's going to all play out from here to the finish line. And I might say some stuff interpreting what I think is going on. David Miller, uh, alongside me and my my commentary partner, might disagree or agree. You sitting at home might have a wildly different opinion. And all of those might be valid. Because the wonderful thing about, uh, I think, road racing in particular is you could get to the finish line and, and line up these four riders and say, right, 
talk us through the last 30 kilometers. And you get four different versions of the same truth. You know, so so I completely agree with you, Anthony. Your your opinion is neither more right or more wrong or more valid or less valid than mine. Um, and that's the great joy, I think, of trying to unpick the complexities of road racing. And I haven't had a brief chance to put that helmet on, for want of a better expression, and mm. be in that four-man break on occasion. Mm. The dynamics when you're sitting in that are so different. They come down to you know, do you have a contract for next year? Maybe there's a team in there that's given a contract. Maybe somebody's paying a bit of cash. You know, listeners probably don't like to hear that or think that it goes on, but it still does go on in bike races. There's cash getting changed hands. You know, Vinokurov in the Olympics is a pretty shining example of that yeah. one. So yeah. there's, there's layers to the onion. I mean, I've got a great example of, com- I commentated oh, maybe going back six, seven years ago at the Vuelta. And it was a stage in which... Um, there was a Colombian rider called, I can't remember his first name, but his second name was Torres, I'm pretty sure. And um, he was in a breakaway with Frank Schleck. So that's how far back this is going. Yeah. Um, uh, but it was one of Schleck's last mo- great moments on a bike. Um, and they were, they were going to stay away on this uphill finish. And I remember um, that Torres was a complete unknown, really. He was riding for the Colombia Espacion team. And, uh, and Schleck was Schleck, obviously a big name. And at one point just as they were kind of like thinking one of them's going to attack fairly soon in the closing kilometers of this stage, Schleck kind of came up alongside Torres and glanced at his bike computer, you know, at the readout on his little screen. And David just, I remember he just buttoned off our microphones and roared with laughter. Um, and I went, what, 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 why are you laughing? And he went, well, Schleck's just about to buy the race. <laughs> no, I, disclaimer, from a legal perspective, I have no idea whether any money changed hands. But David's interpretation was that Frank Schleck, out of alarm, had just seen, he wanted to look at the kind of numbers that Torres was putting out, yeah? And, and it wouldn't have been inconceivable at that point. But that's the kind of race situation where money might have changed hands. As I say, I have no evidence to suggest <laughs> that money did change hands. But then I said to David, I remember saying, so how much would a stage of the Vuelta cost? And without hesitating, without hesitating, he said 20,000 euros. Whoa, would it cost that much? Yeah. But d- d- it was like David had a mental price list in his head of yeah. kind of what, <laughs> where everything costs. You know? It's like a man who's bought and sold one before. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so there's all that as well. Uh, Grand Tours are notoriously difficult. Like for our riders, they're difficult for mechanics and swaneurs. They pull some seriously long nights. I think a bit that we never hear about is how difficult is a Grand Tour for a commentator? Yeah, I don't know if you never hear about that, actually. In my, in my experience, like journalists who cover the Tour de France seem to have, and my, myself included, absolutely, seem to have a kind of endless desire to, to sort of like gas on about how hard our job is. <laughs> and I don't think it's that hard. I think it's an absolute privilege and a pleasure. Um, um, I hated more than anything else the two years when we were commentating remotely and not moving on. So COVID kept us back in the UK. Trying to for- commentate on Swift races. Yeah, yeah, oh, don't even get me started on that. I mean, I'm just not, nonsense. Uh, it's just an utter nonsense. But even the Tour de France from from a distance was a, a, a hideously kind of um, uh, sterile experience. So um, you're right, actually. People are kind of like crazily interested in what it's like to follow the, the Tour de France. And I think maybe the reason for that is that I think a lot of our viewers and our readers, uh, for them, possibly, it might be the dream job. You know, and 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 perhaps there's this kind of degree of envy or jealousy that we get to do it, and I think that's fair enough. Maybe that's what's motivating their interest in what it's like. But I, I, I find myself very increasingly reluctant to kind of complain about how hard it is because it's, and especially now we've returned subsequent to COVID and the pandemic seems to have subsided and we're back to where we were. I feel just an immense gratitude that I'm able to do this. 
as someone who podcasts six days a week, <laughs> the thought of having to commentate for four, five hours, like besides 12th century French architecture, yes. what have you got to pass the time? It just seems difficult. Like it seems like if we said now, okay, this podcast is going to run for four hours. At some point, we're going to be looking at each other and going, right, yeah, how yeah, far yeah. back do we have to go to keep this conversation interesting? Yeah, I mean, I, I won't lie. I, I suppose there are rare, rare occasions where all of a sudden you go a bit blank and you'll be looking at the screen. I mean, you concentrate like fury for these hours. You are staring at that screen in the highest definition. Like it's a completely different experience from just watching the bike race at home. I guarantee you, if you're the voice that accompanies those pictures, your levels of awareness and, and, uh, and, and concentration are off the scale. And I, I can't deny that, that there'd be maybe the odd occasion on stage 13 where not much is happening in the race, where you do suddenly have a, a little blank out and you think, Christ, what am I going to say now? Because there's still 136 <laughs> kilometers to go and, and there's 52 kilometers to go until the next intermediate sprint which you know isn't going to be contested by the riders in the breakaway anyway, so it's a total irrelevance, but it's at least something to work towards. It's a bit like that awful feeling that I think anyone who's ever driven a car will be terrifyingly familiar with, where you're going down the motorway at night and you feel yourself just, you know, like catching yeah. yourself, like, is it that terrifying kind of thing? And then you go, right, bang, you've got to wake up again. And sometimes in commentary, you have these little momentary outs where you think, I don't know what to say but they last like a microsecond. And then that kick starts you into the next thing. Because, you know, going back to the complexity and the detail of, there's always stuff happening. It's just not the obvious stuff. And I don't know if whether we spoke about this in the previous cycling podcast. So tell me if I've, you know, repeating old ground. But what I learned when I started commentating on a bike race, rather than just watching it, was that if you think about the, the shot that you get from Moto2, which is the camera in front of the peloton, yeah, where, like, let's say Tim de Klerk is just doing these endlessly long pulls on the front for quick Human step. tractor. Exactly. Like, when I, w when I just used to watch bike racing rather than commentate on bike racing, my eye would lazily just fall onto Tim de Klerk and kind of stay there, really, because that was the obvious thing that was happening in the center of the frame. When you're commentating, you're not looking at Tim de Klerk. He's the given. You're actually sweeping past Tim de Klerk, and you're trying to look to see what's happening kind of 12 positions further back down the line. And you're trying to puzzle as to why it is that Barre Merida have suddenly placed three riders up there, whereas previously they've been invisible. So you're constantly trying to second guess the positions of the teams further down the line. So as you know, having been in the peloton, there's always stuff happening in the, in the bunch. The organism is alive and we need to reflect that. And I think if you look for the detail, you'll find it. And I think that's where you can really separate the commentators like yourself and Matt Stevens, who I'd say are kind of masters of your craft and somebody else who's a little bit newer and coming in where maybe they focus on just what the eye can see rather than something that's two or three layers below the surface. Well, I mean, it's the old adage. Thank you. That's a, that's a very kind thing to say, but it's the old adage, you know, what, why is road racing uniquely difficult to understand and uniquely beautiful? Well, there's lots of answers to that question, but one of the most obvious answers is the fundamental rule of road racing, or indeed track racing, actually, but let's stick with the road, is that the guy on the front, the rider on the front, is the only rider you can guarantee who's not going to win. <laughs> right? Everyone else has got a chance. The guy on the front hasn't got a chance. And so that's the kind of like, that's the paradox of road racing that you have to really understand intuitively. And then everything else flows from that paradox, doesn't it? And it, and it does, I think, set 
set road racing aside from like, if you like, r- most running races or triathlon or indeed mountain biking or cyclocross, you know, where, where it's kind of brute strength and like the guy at the front will probably win if they can hold on. We've a uh, race in Ireland, which we're very passionate and proud about uh, uh, Ross. I was going to say on Post Ross, but that's an old uh, legacy yeah. sponsor. Uh, the Ross, Ross is amazing. The Ross is amazing. And one of the parts of the Ross, which is quite... Uh, captivating for anyone involved they call them the night stages so the riders occasionally wouldn't get involved in a night stage but you'll normally stay away from a ross night stage the night stage is the legendary drinking that happens as soon as <laughs> it crosses the finish line so you're talking from team directors to volunteers on the race is there a similar culture on grand tours <laughs> um, do you know the funny thing about grand tours is you think it's that you think that would be the case but it's kind of not because their scale of them is so vast. The transfers are so colossal. The wonderful thing is every now and again, you think you're going to see your colleagues from other, you know, from other media outlets. And, you know, I, I can go an entire Grand Tour without seeing any riders. Really? Yeah. Like, because on your rest day, you might end up randomly 85 kilometers from any of the team hotels. It's kind of frustrating like that, actually. You congregate at the finish line, but you're all really busy. You've all got your jobs to do. And then you just kind of get splintered into a million pieces again as the race just explodes and gets scattered across the, the landscape. I wonder what's your relationship. I've been asking this for kind of weird reasons. I definitely don't see myself as a cycling journalist and I kind of yeah. have really poor journalistic standards. That's why I kind of hope and that'll be a barrier for me ever being seen as an actual real journalist. <laughs> but I guess one of the reasons I don't like that is because I was a bike rider and I've always seen journalists maybe as almost the enemy to give the you know one-line answer, to give the fluff off kind of get leave me alone you're kind of annoying me a little bit answer but what's your relationship like with the riders um so for years i I worked in football where there is no relationship between journalists and 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 um and players at least that there isn't any longer a relationship of any description really you know journalists are just a kind of a, a total encumbrance and also they just get exploited as a means to an end uh, but one of the joys I found with uh, actually discovering cycling was that you can have a relationship with the riders and you do know the riders and you can, you know, they're, they're, so a good case in point is, do you remember the stage to, uh, I think, I, I want to say it's 2015, might be wrong, on the Tour de France, there was a stage that finished on the Mur de Bretagne and all the group of favourites came to the line together. Tony Martin was in the yellow jersey weirdly it was that year that was and and um he crashed and there was a sense that a lot of the other favorites might be brought down as well in the sprint for the line um and Nibali and Froome kind of came to blows as they came across the line and Vincenzo Nibali there was no video evidence of this but there was anecdotal evidence that he'd thrown his bead on at Chris Froome is this ringing a bell? I can remember the little tete-a-tete from Froome and Nibali, but I can't recall the Tony Martin crashing. And I can't really remember much about that stage. That was just a, it was just a detail. In it. I can't remember whether the things were connected. But the, the upshot of all of that was that Chris Froome then stormed onto, I think it was the Astana at the time, the Astana team bus, and um, berated <laughs> Vincenzo Nibali. In fact, he pinned him up against the wall. Can you imagine? <laughs> Can you imagine Chris Froome pinning anyone up against the wall? Um, but but this happened. This happened, and we were getting all these rumours about um, uh, about what had gone on. And I remember I I we'd come off air, so I couldn't say this on air any longer. So I thought I'll take to social media instead. So I tweeted out 
you know, we're hearing that this happened and that happened and da 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 da. And I remember Chris Froome clearly by now sitting on the Team Sky as it was bus, obviously just surfing through Twitter. And he'd seen what I was saying. And uh, he kind of sent me a personal message saying, no, no, that's not what happened. I didn't, I didn't, uh, I, there was no bead on thrown and I didn't storm on the team bus. And I kind of, I thought, okay, that's interesting. It's not what I've heard. So, I've, but I thought I'd better retract it. So I kind of did a little update saying, right, I'm now hearing stand corrected, da, 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 da. And then Froome sort of sent me a little, thank you very much, little note. And then about an hour or two later, sent me another message saying, by the way, that all actually did happen. <laughs> <laughs> so he just played me uh, completely. But I, I find that quite, you know, uh, all right, he, he made a monkey of me on that particular occasion. <laughs> but I, I find it quite interesting and, you know, and Cavendish as well, you know, from a British perspective, you know, I've known him, good grief, for as long as he's been racing, you know, and our, our relationship has been, you know, on his terms, largely, but it's been quite close. And, you know, we, we message from time to time and um, there is a relationship there. And occasionally that relationship is excellent as well. Yeah, so I do feel like I know the riders. What's Cav like? My only experience with him, I was on an Irish national team two, three years ago on the track and we had a track session in Palma and Cav rocked up and said, hey guys, I haven't got any track time scheduled, but do you mind if I jump into the rotation with you guys? And the track is kind of funny because you'll go to do, say, a two kilometer effort, but obviously the next effort can't start until your one's finished. So you have a very uh, much a, a sequence you go in and you'll see some world tour riders which will occasionally come up to a track session, but they'll expect to be at the top of the queue straight away. Cavendish yep. wasn't like that. He was super humble. He sat at the back of the queue and he waited his turn and he talked to people and he posed for pictures and he was super chilled out. And then you see the kind of images of him berating his mechanic on this video yeah. that went yeah, yeah, viral. Yeah. And yeah. I struggled to put those two people together. Yeah. Like they were at such polar opposites. Everyone struggles to put those two people together. Even those who know him best of all. Even I would suggest his closest friends and family and his closest sort of business associates down the year. Even Mark Cavendish struggles to put those two bits of Mark Cavendish together. But you've, you've represented them very, very accurately there. And I think that the, the, the fascinating thing about Cavendish and the problem, the problematic thing about Cavendish as well is that the quite binary different versions of Mark Cavendish, those two poles, you never really know which one you're going to get when. And, and often when you least expect bad Cav to come out, bad Cav will come out, you know, in a, in a moment that shouldn't on the face of it be particularly stressful or anxiety inducing or, or, or kind of like provoke that kind of a response, you get it. And it'll blindside you because you won't see it coming. And equally, when you think, you know, this is going to be really difficult time now with Cavendish because something's just gone really badly wrong for him or, you know, he's going to be seething about something. Actually, that's when he'll surprise you with his kind of generosity and his sense of context and kind of and he'll put the fires out rather than stoking them. Uh, so it's really, it's really unpredictable. I remember in 2013, we, which were the, the tour started in Corsica. And after a couple of days racing in Corsica, um, we three days of racing in Corsica, wasn't it? I think it was. Um, we came across to, uh, the whole cavalcade came across to Nice. And stage four was a team time trial the next day in Nice. There's a whole backstory to that, by the way. But I remember that his ethics quickstep team had set the fastest time. And Cavendish is a consummate team time trialist. I mean, he's a brilliant team time trialist. And he was a huge part of them setting the best time. And they all came across the line together, or rather the five qualifying riders came across the line together. And I was there waiting with a microphone to interview him, as I had done 
for, you know, five, six, seven years. He knew me very, very well. He knew that, you know, ITV were the British broadcaster and that he was the kind of core audience. And you have this strange thing where all the other journalists as well at the finish line who all want to talk to Cavendish, they will all defer to me, actually, in that situation, just as I would do to French television if they were interviewing Roman Bardet or Thibaut Pino. You wait for that core interview to be done and then you jump in. So anyway, Cavendish came over the line, came to a halt. We all sort of backed off, gave him a bit of space. He got himself a cold Coke, quenched his thirst, caught his breath, and they'd set the best time. They'd had a really good ride. And I remember sort of piling in eventually after a couple of minutes and asking a very soft, generic question that just was only there to elicit the response of, you must be pretty pleased with that. Yeah. And rather than answering, he simply stared away from me, like literally turned his head through 45 degrees and stared in the opposite direction, started clenching his jaw, which is always a bad sign, <laughs> didn't say a word and rode off. And it was everyone just then, all the rest of the media just looked at me as if to say, what did you say to upset him? And to this day, I have no idea why he responded like that. And it's really curious. And he, here I am sort of fascinated by him all these years later. And, and nothing's changed in that regard since when I first sat down with him in 2007 and was fascinated by how difficult he was to interview back then. He's still that same guy. As a fan, the questions that writers are asked are so frustrating. Like, I bet. I bet. They're so shit. Like, you just want... I, I was at Roller Alive, and I don't want to dog on Roller Alive because the whole thing was brilliant. And it was an amazing coming together of people who are passionate for cycling. But I sat in on the Lachlan Morton interview, which was the big interview for the week. Everyone was piled in, last interview of the week. And the questions are just so tame. You're like, anyone who's in the room already knows the answer to these questions. They're yeah. such soft questions. I'm like, it's almost insulting to the audience to think they can't comprehend a level deeper than the questions. And it's insulting to, I feel, the Reuters or Lachlan getting asked these questions that it's like, mm. tell me about the alt tour. Like the 400 people are here have all seen his video on the alt tour. Otherwise you wouldn't, like Lachlan hasn't won Liège, Paris-Roubaix. He's not known for his world no. tour exploits. He's no. known for his quirky behavior, his alternate events, kind of maybe pioneering the gravel stuff. So we've all seen those events and I just found myself so frustrated like, I wonder, is there a purpose? Is there a... I, I, know, I know what I would have asked Lachlan. <laughs> <laughs> Go on. No, I've always felt... I don't mean this disparate. I've always felt, Lachlan, I don't know... Have you, if you've ever been to Milan and walked around the Duomo, yeah, you will undoubtedly have seen these guys who can do these amazing tricks with footballs. I mean, like, literally mind-blowing tricks with footballs, you know, flicking it over their head, catching it in the little nape of their neck and doing all these things, and, like, ball jugglers, basically. Phenomenal skills. But you put those guys in a training session for a real football team, they would be absolutely nowhere. They wouldn't be capable of playing football, yeah? And Lachlan's cycling career reminds me slightly of the ball jugglers because he has developed a, 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 an extraordinary niche thing that people find fascinating and uh, is, has a real value in and of its own right. But when you put him in the peloton, he's a bit lost. Yeah, I would push back on it a little bit because he still did... I've seen Lachlan racing for Jelly Belly and stuff at lower levels and he was a sensation. When he gets to the World Tour, when it is the 1% of the 1%, yeah. I think that's a point when sacrifice really matters. Like I'm out in Girona at the moment and you see how the World Tour guys live. It's it's monk-like. You know, yeah. I had friends like Michael Barry who were riding for Sky and Postal back in the day. And yeah. 
they switched it on for periods of the year with this strictness. But the World Tour guys now are doing it all year round, looking for yeah. these margins. And I'm just not sure that's a lifestyle that sits with Lachlan's personality. I'm, I'm not 100% not. sure he couldn't do it. I think he yeah. probably could. I'm not sure he wants to do it. In other words, he couldn't do it. <laughs> like, that, that, well, I mean, no, I mean, that's self-defining, I think, isn't it? Because yeah, yeah, I, yeah, I, com- I, I completely buy in what, you, what you're saying about the lifestyle. But if you question whether or not you want to do it, then you can't do it. Yeah, I get that. You get to a point. You know, maybe there's a there's also maybe an intellect to some of the guys who you know, can't do it, won't do it, where they say, look, is this all I am as a bike rider? Absolutely. Before we started recording this, you were talking about Nathan as well as a friend of yours and a, a guy I know a little bit, Nathan Hart, and I think the same's probably to some extent applicable with Nathan as well. I think he sees, he's always looked a bit broader than than the narrow confines that maybe you need to do if, you, if you're going to dedicate yourself solely to this this very, very very hard pursuits that I, I find unimaginable, you know. To loop back to that, I wonder, are those softball questions to the likes of Lachlan, I wonder, are they are they a function of those reactions from the likes of Cavendish through the years and journalists are, on a sense, treading on eggshells then? I don't know. There's all sorts of ways of asking good questions and there's lots of ways of asking bad questions as well. And, you, you know, if you're clever, if you're smart, you you don't treat every rider in the same way. You understand, you build a relationship with riders and you know, for example, Peter Sagan is a very specific skill set. Because <laughs> 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 you've got to get... We make party. <laughs> I, like, I, I used to love interviewing Peter Sagan. Other people found it just a trial, an ordeal interviewing him because it was quite hard to get beyond the, <laughs> you know, kind of stuff. And, um, but I always found that very characterful. You know, I didn't, I, I don't interview Peter Sagan in order to gain his kind of like in-depth analysis of how a stage played out. I interview Peter Sagan just to elicit and distill a little, little nugget of essence of Sagan because he's such an amusing, charismatic figure. Do you remember the interview where Sagan, Froome was getting interviewed and Sagan had just finished. It might have been Tour of hey, California. Hey, hey, Froome, hey, hey. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I loved brilliant. all that. Every day is a Pita Sagan day. Yeah, <laughs> I, lo- I mean, I just loved all of that. But I would, but then I wouldn't mess around like I used to mess around with Peter Sagan. I, I wouldn't do that with a, with another rider, say a kind of um, slightly more cerebral rider who w- would like to maybe engage, like a Teo Gegenhardt or someone like that who actually probably has got stuff to say of substance about race tactics and all that sort of thing. But. So you've come, you've sprung quite rightly to the defence of Lachlan Morton from the kind of riders' union. I, I, I would like, I would like to spring slightly to the defence of journalists, uh, in this sense that one of the, one of the questions that journalists often get lambasted for asking is that the, the question, how does it feel, <laughs> yeah, to have won a stage? How, how does it, how does it feel, you know? Well done, Steve Cummings. You've just won your second stage of the Tour de France. Uh, uh, how does it feel? And it feels like, that question feels like the sloppiest, laziest, most stupid question. Well, it feels great, obviously. But actually, the answer to that question is exactly what you want to hear. Like, that's genuinely it. When we see, we quite often see riders just dissolve in the emotion of the moment when you least expect it. Cavendish has cried. Geraint Thomas. Yves Lampard this year when he took the jersey was brilliant. Lampard. What that a complete revelation that was from Eve Lampard. Who knew Lampard had that about him? I, I didn't. You know, I've seen him win stages of the Vuelta and be interviewed and, and things like that, and fine. But then the, the hugeness, it's a really good example, the hugeness of that moment descended on him. Probably my favourite interview of the year, it was that 
quote he had at the end where the commentator was asking him. Son, yeah. yeah, and he's like, thrust the tires, Eve, thrust your tires. I was like, oh, this is brilliant. It was brilliant. And that is like, I mean, not every rider is able to articulate it, but actually the, there's nothing wrong with that question. How does it feel? Because it is, it is what you want to know as a viewer. You want to know how does that feel to have just achieved that. And Lampart beautifully, for whatever reason, was able to articulate it gloriously in that moment. Those Armstrong years must have been quite challenging as a journalist to face somebody who was, you know, Lance is very much a reformed character now and his, his podcast is brilliant as well. But at the time, he was very confrontational and had a huge wall up. I'm wondering not to open the... Armstrong years, Pandora's box. But I'm wondering, is there a modern day Lance Armstrong who has this sort of shield of hostility? Um, I'm a little bit out of the loop because commentary has taken me away from actually interviewing these guys. But from what I've observed, I, I would say probably not actually. Um, Tom Dumoulin could be a bit prickly. But I mean, you know, I wouldn't want to put any of these guys in the same box as Lance Armstrong. That was a different... Was Wiggins? Yeah. Wiggins is the closest I can think to it. Yeah, I think that's a reasonable comparison. Wiggins, ha, huh, what's the best way of putting this? Wiggins, Wiggins would sometimes engage in belittling the person he was talking to. Armstrong occasionally engaged in belittling the person he was talking to. Um, there were slightly uncomfortable power play moments with both those riders. I think that's, um, I think that's fair enough, yeah. Uh, let's take a little bit of a, a left turn as we wrap up the podcast. You wear many different hats, as we touched on at the start, from author to commentator. But this one-man show, I'm, we touched on it briefly when we chatted on Cyclist Magazine, but I'm just fascinated how it came about, what's the format of it. Mm. Like, is it a full stand-up comedy show? Are you going full Frankie Boyle for 65 minutes on stage? I mean, it's um, it's a theatrical performance. It's um, There are elements of stand-up comedy in it. Um, I mean, I've written four different shows in four different years, so it's not the same show every time I tour. Um, this one I just did, it was in two halves. The first half, I mean, there's a lot of music, there's costume, there's set, it shifts around. It's designed to make you laugh full on from start to finish, but also learn something along the way. It's incredibly hard to describe as I'm really ably demonstrating. Despite years of it, I still find it hard to describe. And I think any audience member, 10,000 people came to see it this week. That's amazing. 10,000 people came to see it. And I think if you asked any of them, they'd go, yeah, it's quite hard to describe. <laughs> Ned, you should be super proud of that though. Because I know in podcast land, crazy TikTok world we're living, that number can sometimes seem trivial. Someone will go, oh, I had an Instagram reel and I got 12 million views of me throwing my cat out the window but it's like you know <laughs> yeah. if you look around uh, any of these piazzas in Girona on a Friday evening and it's absolutely packed there's 400 people there and it's <laughs> packed it's yeah. a lot of 10,000 is a lot of people it's a decent sized crowd at a first division soccer game it is, it is. I might put that on the poster um <laughs> No, I mean, it's, I, 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 was, I was overwhelmed by it, Anthony. You know, that people haven't got, you know, it's 25 quid a ticket. People, then you have, to get, you have to get there, you have to get a taxi, have a meal out, maybe a babysitter. It was a major investment for people in really, really constrained and difficult times. And I was, I was touched beyond measure that, like, especially towards the back end of the show, you know, 500-seat theatres, bigger, some of them were 1,000. Um, we were selling out and uh, it was touching. And, but what it said to me was, those people who get this sport, it sits very deep 
it sits very your your podcast listeners, my podcast listeners, my the roadbook readers, the people who came. It sits the passion for this sport sits very deep, and it's quite hard to shake off once you've got it, you know. And there's a sense of because it is quite a small sport still, you know. It's not golf, thank God. It's <laughs> it, it's it's not cricket, rugby, football, thank God. It's not Formula One, thank even bigger gods. It's cycling, and so there is a sense of community and kinship and scale to it that I think binds people very closely together. And I, and I felt that literally walking onto stage that once the lights had gone down and the lights come up on the stage and with the doors were locked. <laughs> Sounds here safe. We, here, here, well, yeah, yeah. Meta- metaphorically, the outside world was locked out, yeah? We are in this theatre tonight on this Thursday night in, in York because we're in this together and we get it, you know? And that was that sense that I, that I got from the, the tour. Is the evolution for you live podcast? And I went to a live podcast in, oh, that's a very good point. in Dublin and mm. I absolutely loved it. I watched mm. uh, an, an Irish podcaster who's really broke out and he's top 10 downloads in the world now called Blind Boy. Mm. And he interviewed the Irish author Seamus Heaney. Yeah. And it wow. was a fascinating chat. What age is Seamus Heaney? God, he must be well, some he, age. Huh? Yeah, I'd say he's pushing 70s at this point. Wow. Uh, but yeah, fascinating yeah. chat inside. And the, the quirky thing was you bought the ticket, which was a sellout, sold out in seconds, and you yeah. didn't know who Blind Boy was going to be interviewing. Oh, so wow. It, it could have been Bono, <laughs> it could have been the Pope, or it could have been me. You know, what a disappointment that would have been for the crowd. <laughs> that's the interesting model, isn't it? That's um, No, that's so interesting because my, my tour manager um, on, on my theatre tour works with all these big stand-up comedians, these big names, does arena gigs, and, um, and, and Reese was telling me about, he works with one of the top, top, top UK podcasts that sell out. They did two nights at the O2. They did 20,000 seats in one night. You know, it puts my tour into perspective. Crouchfest or something, was it? Uh, yeah, I, can't, I probably shouldn't say which one it is. But he said, what's quite interesting about live podcasting is actually what's quite hard to do is to produce from the same performance, to produce a really cogent and entertaining live show for the audience who are in the theatre. And also a podcast that is going to absolutely zing and look good, you know, alongside all your other podcasts and your, and your stream. Um, that's quite a hard thing to get right. And not many people can do that actually. So I, I think sometime we will dip up. We've done a couple of very small tryout live podcasts on my, my podcast. And I can sense there is a slight tension between what are you offering here? Like, I'm not sure they've been our best podcasts to listen to, but actually as a live performance, they've been really entertaining, I think, for the people who've come. What would be cool is even two or three different, like I'm thinking here in Girona, there's a podcast I love. Now, the lads are never getting a sponsor for the podcast because they will spend 15 minutes discussing the crudest bad word, which is unrepeatable on this podcast. And okay. Right. The merits yeah. of whether they should include it in their podcast, but it's hilarious. Social yeah. distance podcast with George Bennett. Uh, oh, Sam yeah. and Dan yeah, Jones, yeah. just yeah. brilliant. But I'd, I'd love to see two or three cycling-themed podcasts, maybe with shorter segments where it's like a 90-minute show, but three different podcasts in that 90-minute show or something like that where you could aggregate an audience. I think there's there's plenty of room for it. But before I finish up, Ned, uh, I am almost uh, loathe to bring it up because it's uh, – difficult for me because it's it shines a light on how unproductive i am it seems like you have more errors in the day than me you're a cycling commentator you're a podcaster and you're also about to bring out i think on december 17th correct me if i'm wrong the road book is coming out so tell me about how you found time for this and what is it so the road book the road book of 2022 has, has been out for a while actually i think the date of the 17th might be the last day to order in term in time okay. for christmas delivery i think so this is the fifth year of this book um, well, actually, I'm going to hold up to 
show you here. Wow, it's like it's like the Bible. It is like the Bible. It weighs two kilograms, and it's this beautiful hardback book. Um, this is the fifth year that we have uh, produced this book. It contains an entire record of the racing year in terms of infographics, photography, essays, uh, results, obviously, um, obituaries of people who've passed away. It is everything that you need to know to remember what happened this year. We have riders like Lorena Vibers, Matej Mohoric, um, who else wrote for us this year? Andre Greipel, Magnus Court uh, wrote us a piece. It is the indispensable almanac. It's a lovely reference book. I have the still at yeah. home and my girlfriend to be listening to this podcast and going, would he ever throw these out? But I have legal <laughs> reference books like that. There you go, exactly. And I pick them up every now and then. Someone will ask me, obscure, oh, would you mind throwing your eye over this contract? And honestly, I've forgotten more law than I've ever known. And I will just go to these reference books and pull them out. And you don't need them until you need them. And then when you need them, you can't do without them. That's it, that's it. And also... So as much as I would encourage you all to buy the 2022 book, because that's the most recent, but actually, from my perspective, the best one is the first one we did in 2018, five years ago, because I've forgotten almost everything that happened in 2018 (laughs) in the road races. And so the great joy of that book, like you're saying, I've forgotten more law than I ever knew. The great joy of the 2018 book is just to pick it up, open it at random and go, okay, Tour of Flanders 2018. I can't even remember. Was that Gilbert? Can't remember. You know, and then to relive that, and it's incredible how quickly racing recedes into history and becomes nostalgia. And 2018 already has that kind of sepia-tinted vibe about it that makes you think, ah, oh, that was a different time. The tours blend into each other as well. And as a fan, when you're watching, you know, I don't know how many bike races there is in a year, but it's you know, it's overwhelming when you go back. I can't remember what year. Roglic lost on the final day up La Plata Benfi. Was it 2020? 2021. They just blend into each other for me. Um, some don't. Some do, some don't. 2020 will always be absolutely seared into my memory because it happened in September, because it finished in the manner that it finished with that extraordinary time trial and Pogacar's ascent to victory. 2021, the following year, the second Pogacar victory, I f- I'm struggling to remember anything about it. <laughs> I actually, weirdly, I remember that tour for Cavendish's comeback story, you know, slightly more than I remember it for Pogacar's victory. I remember that being the first year anyone could pronounce Pogacar. For a long time, people were calling him Pogacar. <laughs> well, I mean, yeah, some people were. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, you're right. But then 2019, equally, going back, 2019 is a crucially important and vibrant memory for me at the Tour de France, if we're just talking about the Tour de France, because that was the year that Alaphilippe had that very, that very yeah. prolonged stay in the yellow jersey and literally couldn't answer the question that we were all asking him, which was, how long can this last, Julian? Is this a tilt at the yellow jersey? And he would honestly say, I don't know. <laughs> because <laughs> he was he was right live in front of our very eyes. He was discovering the answer to that very question himself. And it was, it was amazing to go on the journey with him, actually. Ned, I've absolutely loved this conversation. The Roadbook, it's out. It's roadbook.co.uk. So it's a perfect stocking stuffer. So everyone go and check it out. Ned, thank you very much for what you do, blazing the trail, keeping us entertained and explaining the difficult sport that is cycling. Thanks, Anthony. Nice to speak to you, mate. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. Have you ever wondered how good you could actually be? Each of us has a unique set of circumstances with work, family and social obligations, but we also want to fulfill our potential in cycling. Okay, okay, maybe you won't ever win the Tour de France, but for most of us, this is what cycling is about. 
So let us build you the perfect training plan around your lifestyle that's totally unique to you and will help you finally realize your cycling dreams. So whether you're just getting started on the bike or if you're a more seasoned cyclist, we have a suitable coach for you. So why not schedule a call with us and we can have a chat about how we can help you go further than you ever dreamed of in your cycling and fitness goals. Go to roadmancycling.com forward slash contact or pop me an email directly to sarah at roadmancycling.com.